studying a little book, 1 John is the book we're looking at. 1 John, little book all the way in the back of the Bible. <clears throat> if you've been uh, with us, uh, you start to see a pattern in the book. And in fact, let's just uh, we'll do something a little different. Let's read the passage today ahead of time and then come back and, and kind of tear it apart. 1 John, and we're going to look, chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John, chapter 4. And verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. <clears throat> the one who does not love does not know God, for God's love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and believe the love which God has given the one who abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he cannot see. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. <clears throat> if you've been around for any length of time, as we've studied this, this is John's third or maybe fourth time of saying essentially the same technique, guys. And I really think, uh, not that I have any new revelation at all, nor do I have particularly any new insight, but I have something exciting that I've seen in here, and I don't know if I can translate it to you. <laughs> it's been a personal discovery, and it's a verification of something I knew all along. Whoever wrote these books is pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's pretty interesting. And, and, and I'm not asking you to get in and to outline and to diagram, but it's an interesting technique. If you've ever taught, you know how important repetition is to teaching. Even in this day of sophisticated audio-visual computer aids and training, Teachers today will tell you repetition is still the key. It's still the key to do it again. The problem with repetition is, repetition becomes what? Well, if you're classy, you would say repetitive. Uh, but boring is what the result is. Repetition is boring. That's exactly right. But John has a technique. It's important to understand, guys. We're saying John wrote this book, but who wrote it? The Holy Spirit. God wrote this book. And God has a great literary style. And here's what he does. He interjects a subject, at least under, in John's writing. He interjects a subject, and then he begins to expand on that subject just a little bit. 
He teases your mind, he opens it up, and then he moves out. He moves to another subject, but he comes immediately back to the subject at love, this time from a little different angle, and he opens your mind a little further. Then he moves out again. Now he's coming in for the kill. He moves in for the kill. He expands your mind. And then last week he just stuck this spear called truth in the middle of it. Remember we said two words, inseparable. And those words are love and truth. If I love, I'm going to be committed to truth. And that's exactly what happens here. That You need to understand the truth. And uh, if, if you weren't here last week, next week that table will be out. It is really important to understand the truth and to test every spirit and to try to seek the truth and to understand that God has given us the truth in His Word. But John doesn't leave it there. See, you can be very, very, very truth-oriented. In fact, to the point that some people will call you dogmatic. So the key to truth is not truth in and of itself, men. The key to truth is truth coupled with love. Now, it's interesting because John is called the Apostle of Love. And he's kind of always depicted in that vein. In fact, he's always kind of depicted as kind of a meek guy, maybe, a, maybe a, you know, just a little borderline. And that's the way we see John. But it's important to remember, in Luke chapter 9, John and his brother James were walking along with Jesus, and the people had rejected him. And remember what John said? He said, Jesus, I'm sick him. Send down lightning and thunder. Blow these people away. That's the apostle of love. <laughs> now, what has happened in John's life? See, John has been not reformed, because John couldn't produce that. John has become the apostle of love because his life has been transformed by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See that? John's not just going through some kind of self-talk thing. It's not just that he said, I will be loved, I will be loved, I will be loved. What's happened is, John's life has been transformed by the person of Christ. And he's saying, I want you to understand something. This, this way we love one another becomes the benchmark. It is so important that you cannot miss it. In fact, if you miss it, John says, you may be in trouble. Here's what he says now. Look at it. He said, everybody who loves, verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God. A couple of observations that we can make. One is, love is obvious. And it's inevitable. If you know Christ, you'll love. You can't help it, John says. Jesus said this. He said, they're going to know you. They're going to know my disciples because you love one another. John told us uh, two weeks ago. He said, look at not just in word, but in deed. You're going to see a need and you're going to want to meet it. You're going to want to take an, an opportunity, whether it's in business, whether it's in the family, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the community at large, you're going to see a need, okay, grab this, particularly a need of a brother, and you're going to want to meet that need. In fact, Jesus said at one point in the area of giving, He said, I don't want the left hand to know what the right hand is doing. And that's not that He wants you giving willy-nilly, the picture is this, uh, almost everybody in that day and age was right-handed. And he said, I want you, as you're moving along, when you see a need, that's the context, you reach out to meet that need, and it happens so fast and such a reflex that the left hand doesn't even know what the right hand is doing. There's just a reaction in us that wants to meet needs. Now, that's what John says. He said, first of all, this love becomes inevitable. Secondly, look at the second word in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. See, it becomes a conscious decision. 
It's a determination that you make. It says, I will love. Uh, the other night we uh, got a call from a, a couple in our Sunday school class, and uh, they were having problems in their marriage, or at least they felt they were. She wanted to leave, so that usually is an indicator of a problem. And she <laughs> was gone. So we went out and uh, sat and listened to them. And uh, it is, it, most, most of the conversations are pretty similar. And most of the times you get through the tears. The tears are usually the first 15 or 20 minutes. And once you get through the tears, we get down to, to, to anger. And all the hurt and all the pain and all the things come out. And then she said, I know what I need to do. I just don't want to do it. I know that I can't leave, but I want to. And then she said, here's the $64,000 comment. I just don't feel anything. She said, I can't even muster up enough strength to hate this guy. I mean, I feel nothing. And we went right to this passage and we said, hey, you know what? Love isn't a feeling, it's a commitment. And you have to resolve in your mind that you're going to love this guy. You're going to be committed to him, not because he deserves it. In fact, I think we could take a vote in this room uh, that night, and I think we could unanimously uh, save one vote, agree that he doesn't deserve it. But I'm loving him because I'm committed to him. Do you ever look for a definition of love? It's kind of interesting. Here's what Webster says. Let me tell you something first about Webster's definitions. <laughs> A lot of them are really good. I don't know if you've ever, I don't sit and read the dictionary, but, but I go a lot to Webster to see what he says. We looked up secular the other day, and, and he did a great job of saying secular is temporal compared to permanent, and really a good definition. Here's his definition of love. Love is a feeling of strong personal attachment induced by sympathetic understanding or by ties of kinship, ardent affection. Webster says a, a, a love is essentially affection or a feeling. Men, that's not what God is, or that's not what love is. Love is defined by God. Verse 8, God is love. Now, you want to know what love is, God is love. When it's time to define love, you could be correct in just writing one word. Love is God. That's what verse 8 says. That doesn't help us much, though. But it gives us the basis for a discussion. God is love. And almost... Everybody who acknowledges God seems to say that he's a God of love. There's a poll from the uh, Phoenix Republic, August of uh, 1985. Eight, or 97% of the people polled think God loves people. And it's almost the same in every poll that I've seen. You see about the same statistics. 94 to 97% of the people believe in God. And virtually everybody that believes in God believes God loves people, that God is a God of love. And I want to show you something today, because that is true. But there is another side to God. We need, uh, we need somebody. Uh, let's, take, uh, let's take Chris. Always fun when we do this. Okay, now, no, no, not a trick question. Is God love? Does God love people? Anybody disagree with that? No. I mean, God is love. And God loves, doesn't he? But that's not the whole picture of God. And what happens is, along come people and say, God is love, and we embrace this God as a God of love, and we think he loves, 
in lieu of every other aspect or attribute that he has. That he's a God of love, therefore he mustn't have anything other, any other qualities. And if he has any other qualities, they submit to his love. And guys, that's not the way God is. And you'll never have an accurate picture of God if you see God as a God of love in lieu of everything else or put everything else in submission to it. God is a God of perfect balance. If I say to you, Chris is a businessman, is that right? Some of his clients say yes, some of his clients say no. Yeah, yes, Chris is a businessman. But I certainly have not defined everything that Chris is. He's a father and a husband. Uh, he's a church man. He's a leader. Uh, he is an athlete. It's the same thing with God. R.C. Sproul tells of a time that Madeline Murray O'Hare was on David Frost's show. And they were talking about theology. And, and this was the discussion. And they were going along. And David Frost was uh, journalistically neutral, uh, as all of them are. And as he was interviewing him, well, that's sincere. As he was interviewing him, he's, uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare was so offensive and so obnoxious and so one-sided that Frost became the greatest theist in American history. So uh, Frost began to talk, and then he did what all of us should do in every situation. He said, well, let's ask the audience. So he turned around and he said this, how many of you in the audience today, and he said, turn the camera so we can see the result of it. How many of you in the audience today believe in a God who's a God of love? In fact, you believe in this higher power who, who may or may not really have supervised the creation of everything, but he is a higher power, a God of love. How many of you believe that? When every hand in the place went up. And he turned to Madeline Murray O'Hare and he said, See? And she said, Well, all that proves is that the people that come to this show aren't very bright. <laughs> but she had a great opportunity to use that studio audience to make a terrific point. She should have said, hey, that's sweet, that's fine, that's cute. But how many of you believe in a God who judges sin? A God who hates sin? A God who at one point in time almost destroyed all of mankind through a flood? A God who has allowed and encouraged people to slaughter hundreds of thousands of people in battle? How many of you believe in a God that will one day judge the sin of the whole wide world and you'll stand judged? Oh, not many, not, not, not a lot of hands. See, God is love, don't ever, ever, ever forget it. And that's the context. But God demonstrated His love. God is love. And we ask, how do we know God is love? Here's the proof in verse 9. God is love, and His love was manifested in us, in that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, keep your finger right there, and let's try to clear this whole thing up. Turn to the left, toward the front of the New Testament, to the book of Romans. And the third chapter, and let's try to put some meat to these words. Romans, chapter 3. And verse 23. Now, John has told us we know God is love because He sent His Son into the world to die for our sin and that He is the propitiation. There's that $64,000 word, propitiation, for our sins. Well, here's the situation. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And this is Paul writing. He said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul said, Here's the basic premise upon which we're all going to start. Everybody has sinned. And we remember, we define sin. We said outgoingly, sin is lawlessness. But it means literally to miss the mark. 
He said, everybody that's ever lived has missed the mark. James says, if you violated one of God's commandments, you violated them all, meaning that you are entirely guilty. And he said, everybody, everywhere, every time has sinned. And I've never had but one person disputed. It was a guy I used to work for, uh, and I went in one day, and we were talking about this. We are talking about reincarnation, and he believed he was somebody. I can't remember who it was, um, but he was somebody, and he believed in perfection. And he said, I said, there's nobody perfect in the world. I was trying to get him to this. I said, let's just agree on one thing. Everybody's sin. He said, oh, I don't agree with that. And I said, well, wait a minute. You're in the real estate business. How can you, how can you have a hard... And I don't understand. If anybody should understand this, you ought to understand. He said, oh, no. There are perfect people in the world. I said, are you telling me that you've met somebody who's perfect that's never sinned? He said, oh, no. No, I've never met him. But they're in the world. And I said, well, name one. He said, well, I can't name you one. I just know that they're in the world. And I said, well, let me tell you something, pal. There aren't any. All of sin. Now, guys, we're going to take just a little second to explain what happens when we sin. You and I come in to this world sinners. We haven't sinned yet, but we have a sin nature. We then confirm that nature as we sin. The moment we sin, we become separated from God. We're separated from Him. We're dead spiritually. Alive physically, dead spiritually. In fact, that's what he said. He said in in, in 1 John, he said, His Son has come that you might have life because you're dead spiritually. You've sinned. You're separated from God. You, in fact, owe God something. You owe Him a life. The result of sin, the penalty of sin is death. It's death. Remember the guy uh, last week, he's got about, uh, in cash and assets, about $25,000 and he owes somewhere around $5 million. So he thinks he's in trouble. Okay? But you don't know. He's got a clever accountant. That's what I told him. I said, we're about to... But, but my point is, I could come to him, and it doesn't matter if I ask him for 50000 or 500000 or $500 million or $500 billion, He can't pay the 50000 He can't. Pay. He's got a debt he can't pay. That's exactly where you are in your relationship with God when you come into the world. And as you sin, you've got a debt you can't pay. There's no way you can pay it. You will never, ever, ever be able to pay it. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the God and justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, the word propitiation means to satisfy. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed His blood, and when I come to Him in repentance of faith, God stamps my bill, figuratively, if you will, paid in full. Jesus Christ has satisfied my debt. And I've been justified. It's a legal term. It means the verdict is in and you've been acquitted. You've been declared not not innocent. You're innocent. You've been declared guilty. But the bill is paid. Someone else paid the bill. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the bill. Now, there's the picture of what, of what uh, propitiation is. Jesus Christ died in your stead. You deserved it. He got it. And when I come in repentance and faith, I become justified before God. And that's exactly what 
John is saying in 1 John. Let's go back there because he makes an incredible point. 1 John <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. Look at verse 19 in the same chapter. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love God because He first loved us. I want you to grab this because this should take you to a new level. I can tell you about four years ago, I began to understand this, and it took me to a deeper uh, uh, response, thanksgiving to God than I'd ever had before. Here's how I visualize that. I believed all that stuff that I just told you, <clears throat> and, I, and I still do, and I believe that I had faith. In fact, I believe I had what the Bible says is a mustard seed of faith. I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed, but it's a little dinky, little tiny seed. But here's what I believed. I believed that I generated the mustard seed. Oh, it wasn't much, but I generated it. That what in essence I did is I came into the world and looked at all the alternatives that were out there in the marketplace. I looked at all the different religions. I looked at humanism and I looked at atheism. I looked at all the different things. And in my wisdom and out of my love and out of my feeling and out of my emotion and out of my intellect, I came to a point where I said, okay, Jesus, you're it. I'm buying stuff in Jesus. But John says, that's not what happened. Now hang in with me, because this gets a little theological, but it is incredibly important to you. Okay? That's not what happened. That may be what I experienced. That may be the way that I would report it. I may tell you that that's what happened. I may tell you that I was searching for God, but God says, uh-uh, nobody's searching. In fact, He says this, the only reason you love me now is because I loved you first. Because I reached out and loved you first. Because I gave you the mustard seed. You couldn't even muster up the mustard seed. I gave you the mustard seed. It's all a gift. I did it all. I died on the cross and I gave you the ability to believe this. Now when you say, Lord, thank you for my salvation, does it have a different meaning? See, when you understand that God sent His Son out of an act of love to save, to die, to save mankind, and then God gave you the ability and the strength and the wisdom to love and to come to Him, all of a sudden what happens is this. God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and time gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Here's the practical aspect of this, guys. If I figure out that I was smart enough to choose God, I'm going to take some credit for this. And he said, I don't want you to take any credit for this. I want you to understand how lost you were. I want you to understand how hopeless your situation was. Because it's going to generate a response. John is awful logical. Look at verse 11. He said, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is saying, look it, if this is really true, if this is really the case, then there should be some response on your part. And the response is, you've got this debt, you're going to want to repay it, you're going to want to repay God in some way if you can, or at least respond to it. You understand you can't repay Him. So what you do is you move to an experience of obedience. If you love Him back, you'll keep His commandments. And here's the commandment, love one another. Now there's the picture of it. He said you're to love one another. There was a story on, on uh, CBS Nightly News a couple weeks ago of a guy who, he and his buddy were in Vietnam and the buddy literally fell on a grenade or did something heroic to save this man's life and died in the course. And they tracked this guy for 20 years 
as he tried to deal with that one, and as he dealt with it, he realized he had this enormous debt to pay this guy back, and then his search to find this guy's family, and then the reunion of the two families. And it was really a touching, touching scene. And the man said, 20 years ago, and I mean he is filled with tears and sadness and indebtedness. He said, 20 years ago, your husband and your father gave his life for me. He said, I don't know what I can do. I owe everything to you. And men, in that case, that was the unrighteous dying for the unrighteous. When I understand the holy God died for my place, I want to respond. i got to respond. That's what James says. That's what John says. That's what the whole New Testament says. I've got to respond some way. And here's the response. I'm going to want to love you. And you love me. Apparently, the first century church took this pretty seriously. The uh, first century historian and Christian philosopher, uh, Eruditus, wrote this. Speaking of the church, first century. They walk in humility and kindness, and no falsehood is found among them. They love one another. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that has distributes liberally to he that has not. If they see a stranger, they bring him in under their own roof. They rejoice over him as if he were their own brother. For they, in fact, call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit in God. When one who is poor passes away from the world, and any of them see him, then he provides for the burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their numbers imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide his needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. They even take his place. They pay the debt one and another if they can. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they don't have the abundance of necessities, they fast for two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. Hello. Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then he said, The whole world's going to know you're my disciples because they're going to look at you and they're going to say, Look at that love. That's got to be supernatural. Did you ever walk down an aisle in a response to some message that somebody gave and say, Jesus, come into my heart? Maybe you've been to a banquet, a breakfast, or a lunch, or a dinner, and somebody's asked you to respond. Just accept Jesus as Savior. In fact, it's not, it's not at least a weekly event for me to meet somebody that says, I did that when I was eight, and then I did it when I was in high school, and then there was a time in college where I was in real trouble, and I got myself in so deep that I had nothing to do, so I accepted Jesus again. And then I got married and I accepted Jesus. We were in uh, California doing an outreach breakfast, and... Uh, they chart their response, kind of California-ish. They chart their responses, and they pointed out to me that one guy had now checked a box on a card that he had accepted Jesus uh, for seven consecutive months. You ever say, Jesus, come into my heart? Let's be honest. Okay, just one second. We'll, we won't have to be honest again the rest of the day. Okay, let's just be honest one second. Did you ever wonder if he came in? I mean, how do you know? I say, okay, Jesus, I'm serious, deadly serious. Come into my heart right now. I accept you as Savior. Do you ever wonder if he was there? I mean, how do I know that he's there? Here's how you know. First of all, he said he'd be there. If I reach out, I reach out in faith and repentance. 
And if I reach out in faith, God says, if you believe and if you call upon my name, you'll be saved. If you confess me as Lord, you'll be saved. So how do I know mentally that he's there? He said it. There's a little bumper sticker that says, you know, God said it, I believe it, so it's true. Well, the bumper sticker's not true. God said it, so it's true. Whether you believe it or not makes no difference. It makes no difference whether you believe it or not. If God said it, it's true. i got a whole bunch of people that God said it and they don't believe it. It's still true. Okay? And God said if you cry out in repentance and faith, He'll be there. If you sincerely, openly, honestly ask Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, uh, maybe come into your heart or not, He doesn't in- occupy a certain part of the anatomy and there's nothing in Scripture that says come into my heart. But if you just say, Jesus Christ, you're my Savior, here's the acid test. If you were going to stand before God today and He said, why should you be in heaven? If your answer is because Jesus died for my sin and I have the promise of eternal life because I've trusted Him, you've got eternal life. Now, you can know it right up in here. That's how you know it, that He came in. Okay? But there's another way. Okay? That's book knowledge. And that's true, and it's real, and it's there. But John says there's a practical affirmation that takes place. Your life will become a life of love. Your life will become a life of commitment. John said, if you abide in Him, and He abides in you, you'll love one another. There's the practical test of it. How are you doing? I mean, do you love one another? Do you love the brothers? Do you love the unlovable? Do you find yourself in situations and say, I can't believe I'm doing this. I've got a friend that's really a neat guy, but he hates hospitals. He hates everything about hospitals. Probably a lot of guys in the room like that. He doesn't like the smell. He doesn't like the people. He doesn't like doctors. The only person a doctor is a lawyer, and he hates it all. He hates everything about it. He hates hospitals. And then a guy in our church got sick, and he got very sick. And they began to just cut the guy away, literally. They got a disease and they had to amputate from the ankles down. I don't remember what it was. And then from the knee down. And they started to cut apart his legs. And then his liver began to... And this guy was sick. And this guy who can't stand hospitals found himself in that hospital every day. Every day. To the point where not only did he kind of get through the lobby the first time, but now he'll walk in and say hello to the people around him. In fact, he's even discovered that in our church bulletin, it tells you who else from the church is in the hospital, and he's knocking on their door to see if they're doing okay. Well, men, that's not just some self-willed action. That is a life that's been changed by the Holy Spirit. See that? Nothing dramatic, no horns, no bells, no whistles, just the simple execution of life. He didn't have to quit his job, he didn't have to change his career, he didn't have to go to Bongo Bongo land. He knows today that God lives because he's seen him live in his life. He's got his word that says it and he's seen the practical application of it. And John says, that's exactly where you and I are. He said, we are to love one another. That's the proof that we're responding to God. Now, beginning in verse 12 through verse 16, if you're somebody who writes or underlines in your Bible, there's a little word in there, and we want you to mark it. The word is abides. I think you see it six times in these uh, four verses, and three times in verse 16. Here we go. No one has beheld God at any time. Let's stop for a second. 
Nobody's ever seen God. Nobody has ever seen God. Now, Moses saw some manifestation, but he didn't see God. Right before uh, Moses saw the light, God said, Moses, you can't see God. Nobody's seen God. And uh, Isaiah had an experience where he looked up, in fact, and uh, he said that he saw God. It was in Isaiah chapter 6. And, and here's how Isaiah says it. He said, in the year of King Isaiah's death. Now, I always wondered why that was in there, because that's not important to anybody unless your name is Isaiah. Then that's pretty important. But in the year he died, he said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted in the train. And the seraphim stood over him, having six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet. And they flew back and forth, saying, holy, holy, holy. But he didn't see God. He saw a manifestation, he saw a vision, he saw something, because Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, nobody has seen God, he's invisible. John says it here, nobody has seen God. God is invisible. God is invisible, and yet he wants to manifest himself to the whole world. Now, how does he do that? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, I don't know, we don't talk about it much. It's not like it's a taboo or anything, but I don't know. Do you try to think about God? I mean, do you try to think about what he's like and see him? I mean, maybe I'm weird, but I don't. I mean, I don't try to picture him. But I have found I can begin to comprehend an infinite God when I look at his creation. When I look at this earth and the way it functions, if we leave it alone, and this solar system, and this universe, and the billions and literally billions of other solar systems that are out there, I've got to go, wow! (laughs) An invisible God becomes somewhat visible through His creation. That's how He becomes visible. I've never met John Steinbeck, but as I read some of John Steinbeck's creations, his, his literature, I get some insight into Steinbeck. We're not trying to equate the two. The point is this. The invisible becomes visible through his creation. God becomes visible through his creation. He says, now, here's what happens. The church becomes my visible manifestation of this. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us the Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides, God dwells, God lives in him and he in in God. And we have come to know and believe that love which God has for us. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's a circle. I love, I abide, he abides in me. It's a continuing circle. It never ends. It goes, it goes, it goes. And he said, I want you to understand this for one reason. Here it is, verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us. Love is matured within us, is what he's saying, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. John said, I want you to understand this, and I want you to get this point. And he says, don't miss it. I want you to live confidently. Let me ask you this. God is love. 97% of the people around say God is love. Everybody agrees God is love. Now, the ultimate, ultimate question in life, if I believe in heaven and hell, is where am I going to spend that eternity? I mean, that becomes the ultimate question in life. 
And there may be other things. And I'm going to take two more minutes. That's what I've got. Maybe three. And you right now may be incredibly uh, <laughs> tempted to check out. But hang in for three more minutes. God is love. The ultimate thing that all of us wrestle with is where will I spend eternity? Now let me ask you this. Would a loving God keep you in suspense about your eternal destination? doesn't even make sense. I mean, even using the broad sense of the term that everybody uses, that God is love, in lieu of everything else, if I were to take the wrong interpretation, forgetting the right one, if I were to take the wrong interpretation that God is love and solely love, would I in any sense think that God wouldn't want me to know where I was going to spend eternity? See, that's what he says in verse 17 and 18. He said, I want you to have confidence. I want you to have knowledge. I want you to know where you're going to spend eternity. Now let me ask you men, do you know where you'll spend eternity? He said, I want you to know it. And if there's any question in your mind, he said, something's wrong. Either we need to give you more information, or we don't understand it, or we haven't responded. He said, I want you to know. I want you to understand. I want you to be confident. You ever seen somebody that's confident? I don't mean cocky. Confident. He said, I want the Christian community be, to be the most confident of all the people in the whole wide world because they know that they have the answer to life's ultimate question. They have the antidote to death, which is life, eternal life, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now I ask again, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? I'm convinced there's going to be a lot of people who are going to stand before God and go, uh, you know, I never really heard. I mean, we went to a church and, and the pastor wasn't that good. And he never really explained this stuff very good. So God, I mean, I had to have some sort of like special compensation here. But explain it to me. You explain it to me one more time and then I'll tell you whether... Uh-uh. No. He said, well, you know, my folks, my folks never really, they weren't church people. And, and so I never really got a lot of that church stuff. And, and uh, no, let me tell you, men, you are now without excuse. Consider yourself warned. I don't care if you have no church background or you've been in church uh, since day one. I don't care who the pastor's been or not been or what you've heard or what you haven't heard. Today, you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. Here it is. God loves you. You have sinned and you're separated from God. God is calling and saying, come to me in faith and come in repentance. Men, if you know that, if you know that you're going to spend eternity in the presence of a holy God based on your response to that, to that calling as you come, evidenced by a changed life, doesn't that change your life? Doesn't that change your outlook? Doesn't that take everything in your life and kind of begin to put it in perspective? That's what he's saying. Let's pray. And as we pray, let's pray that God sends the Holy Spirit through all of us. The Holy Spirit, in fact, lives in many people in this room right now, but not necessarily in everybody. If you've never responded to Christ's call of the gospel, men, I encourage you to respond right now. And as we pray, we're going to take a couple of seconds just in silence so you can take a look at your life quickly. And those of you that say you're Christians, how you doing? And here's how you know how you're doing. 
Do you love one another? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you because you loved us first. And Father, maybe somebody today for the very first time is crying out and responding to your call. I just ask, Father, that you give that person the boldness to step forward, the boldness to step forward in your presence and to call upon you. Father, maybe there's somebody here that's confused now. Maybe this doesn't make any sense. Father, give them the courage to reach out and to get some answers, to maybe talk to the person that invited them or get a hold of somebody afterwards. And Father, get some answers to these questions. And Father, we say thank you. And I pray with a new depth and with a new meaning and with a new sincerity, with a new reality, understanding now better than ever, Father, what you did for us when you sent your Son to die on the cross. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you.